from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 26th. Today, the president's trip to the G7 summit, how fentanyl crosses the southern border, and why a star quarterback is retiring at the height of his career. Bonjour from Biarritz, France, the site of the 2019 G7 summit. It just wrapped up. It was kind of a wild three days here where, you know, there's all sorts of surprises and reversals and contradictions. Damien Paletta is a senior economics correspondent for The Post. At the conclusion of the summit, President Trump at his press conference really talked about unity between the leaders. But quite frankly, I saw a lot of disharmony, a lot of friction over trade, the sense that Europeans had thrown up their hands on climate change with the president, and this frustration that maybe these issues facing the world just aren't going to get resolved. My big takeaway from this summit, having been to several, is that the world order that has been around for several decades, where top countries get together and try to address global issues, that world order has broken down. There's just a sense now that nationalism is taken over in the United States, in Britain, and in other countries. And so, you know, you have leaders, populist leaders like President Trump, Boris Johnson in the UK, who feel very strongly that they have to take care of their own country's issues first. And that can be very popular with voters, absolutely, and it could be enough to get re-election. But if there's a situation where there's a crisis and these leaders have to come together to solve something, you know, there's, there's a fair question about whether they can do that, given how little they can accomplish at a summit like this. Also at the G7, President Trump made news with his public declaration that he wants to hold next year's summit at his own resort, the Trump National Doral, Miami. Doral happens to be uh, within Miami. It's a city. It's a wonderful place. It's a very, very successful area of Florida. Uh, It's very importantly only five minutes from the airport. The airport's right next door. This is the president of the United States using the power and prestige of the United States, its membership in this group of seven uh, powerful countries, basically using that as a lever to get himself a convention, you know, to, to get some convention business into his hotel. David Farenthold covers Trump's businesses for The Post. In a legal sense, the Constitution bars presidents from taking emoluments. We've talked about that word a lot. Emoluments from foreign states or from the U.S. government. So payments from foreign states or payments from the U.S. government above his salary. And this would probably involve both. Foreign countries would pay for hotel rooms to put up their leaders and their large entourages. The U.S. government would likely pay for U.S. personnel as well as possibly some upgrades to the security or other features of the hotel. So a huge amount of money coming in from sources that the Constitution says specifically presidents shouldn't get any money from. And, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this so many times, but it's worth pointing out again that previous presidents have taken great pains to avoid any appearance that they would be taking official state actions that would enrich themselves, that would be helpful for their bank accounts or their businesses. And this is a case where President Trump is just kind of openly being like, yeah, of course you should stay at my hotel. Right. He said today, well, I lose a lot of money. I'm not going to make money. 
money on this. There's absolutely no proof provided by him or anybody in his organization, A, that he's lost money through the presidency or B, that this giant influx of people into his hotel would not make him money. The president has a long history of being dishonest about his business and how much money he makes, how much money he loses. I don't put a huge amount of stock into that statement that he's not going to make money off this just because he says it. And and the specific number that he said was that he expects that he will have lost three to five billion dollars by the end of his presidency. Well, I'll tell you what I've spent and I think I will in a combination of uh, uh, loss and opportunity. Probably it'll cost me anywhere from three to five billion dollars to be president. And it sounds like that doesn't really square with your understanding of his business. No. Part of it is him saying, well, I gave up possible future deals that might have brought me that much money. And and obviously, those deals might just exist in his own mind, or they might have just existed as a conversation with somebody. It's impossible to quantify future deals that didn't get done because he swore off foreign deals when he became president. In terms of losses, though, Crane's New York business, which is a pretty good authority on Trump's revenue, says that the overall revenue of the Trump organization is something like $700 million a year, which is nothing to sneeze at, obviously. But even if you zero that out and made it zero, Trump never made another dollar because of the presidency. It would take a long time for that that missed revenue to equal three to five billion dollars. And when we talk about the reason why President Trump wants to do this, obviously it would be a point of pride for him to host world leaders at one of his at one of his properties. But also, I think it is worth pointing out that you've reported that that is a resort that has financially struggled in recent years. That's right. The company itself, the Trump Organization's own representative, said last year that the resort is, quote, severely underperforming, unquote, that since Trump bought it in 2012 uh, and put a bunch of money into the renovations of it, that its revenues and its profit have both declined. Uh, I think the profit have declined something like 70 percent. And the reason that the Trump representative gave was Trump's own brand. She said this resort is underperforming because of the brand that's attached to it, the Trump brand. So, yeah, this is a place that could use the money. Uh, It could use a big influx of people. Since the beginning of Trump's presidency, there have been numerous efforts to legally challenge things that, that the president has done based on the emoluments clause. What is the status of some of those legal challenges? They haven't accomplished very much. Uh, There were three main lawsuits filed, of which two have now been uh, dismissed, and one is on hold while President Trump appeals it and tries to dismiss it. This is an area where, you know, the the federal courts don't like to make new law. They feel nervous kind of going out on their own. They like to make law where, you know, there's been decades of jurisprudence up to the point where this court ruling needs to just make one small distinction. But this is like, you've got to build the whole bridge. You've got to build the whole case law. And because of that, judges have kind of shied away from that. And I think they've – so they've dismissed a couple of lawsuits saying that the plaintiffs didn't even have the standing to sue Trump. The only pending lawsuit left was filed by a bunch of congressional Democrats who said, look, Trump should, should have come to us for approval for these emoluments and he didn't, so we're going to sue him. I just think that process, even if it succeeds, we won't even get to the discovery phase, meaning the phase in which we'll just learn which foreign governments have been paying Trump probably until after the uh, end of Trump's first term. What was your reaction when you saw President Trump bring up the prospect of holding the G7 in Doral next year? Today, I was not surprised. We had been hearing about this for a while, that it was a possibility. We know Trump likes to go to his own clubs. He's made a lot of efforts to bring Republican fundraisers to his clubs. 
mostly with his own presence. So he goes a lot to his own clubs to speak to Republicans. And at those events, he's sort of the, 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 the headliner and he's also the host. He makes money off all the hotel rooms and the ballrooms and everything. So he's used the power of his political office within the Republican Party to bring business to his clubs. And here's the chance where he as president has the power to bring a huge amount of business to his own clubs. Having watched him the last two and a half years, I'm not surprised that he sees that opportunity and use it as a way to make money for himself and didn't just pass it up because of the appearances. He's shown very little interest in uh, appearing to be separate from his businesses uh, as president. In fact, he's shown the opposite. Well, it's interesting when you mention appearances, because I think to a lot of people, this is the kind of thing that you would expect a politician to do behind the scenes, to sort of quietly lobby for a big lucrative event to be held at, at a place that belongs to him. But the fact that he just does it publicly on television in front of everyone saying these people should come to my to my resort and stay at my hotel, I guess that that is very much the Trump way. Yes. I mean, I think the thing you have to remember about Trump is he only ever won one race and he won that race for a variety of reasons. And because of that, he thinks that whatever he does works because he's never had a, he's never been turned down by the voters. He's only been in front of the voters once. And so that theory of what voters want, what voters will react to, because effectively the, the voters are the check on the president, right? The president has so much power, uh, but has to stand for re-election every four years. Trump doesn't think voters care about this. And he may be right. I don't know. But I feel like we haven't really had a test of it. And I think in his mind, voters have seen it, they like it, and he's going to keep doing it. Damien Paletta is the senior economics correspondent for The Post. David Farenthold covers Trump's businesses. We're literally standing in the middle of traffic. It's sort of a gray day, and there's a big sign that says United States and San Ysidro Port of Entry. Sari Horwitz has spent the last year reporting on fentanyl. It's a synthetic opioid 50 times stronger than heroin, and it's become a huge problem in the U.S. A lot of this fentanyl is making its way in from Mexico. But Siri says that fentanyl isn't getting smuggled through the desert in the dark of night across unsecured sections of the southern border, the places where President Trump has pushed to build or fortify walls. The reality is almost all the fentanyl that enters the U.S. from Mexico comes in at official border crossings, through legal ports of entry, in a traffic jam of cars. And even though border officials know this, it's almost impossible for them to stop it. We're in San Diego. We're actually at San Ysidro, which is the nation's largest port of entry. And what they tell us is 100,000 people pass through here every day. And we're here to talk to Customs and Border officials to understand better the challenge of finding fentanyl, a little tiny white powder. And we know like a very small amount can cause many deaths. And the challenge of finding that in one of these cars out here, these hundreds of cars. We're getting a tour from U.S. Customs and Border Protection officials who are guiding us through this line of traffic. Cars hardly moving and there's vendors selling. Food along the way, very entrepreneurial. Many commuters don't get up early enough to have breakfast. <laughs> so. Oh, seriously? Are there a lot of commuters in this? 
Yeah, a lot of them cross every day to go to work or to go to school. We're technically in the United States, but really several yards away, not very far away. We can cross right over into Tijuana. So what we've been told is that sometimes people wait in line here 15, 20 minutes. It can sometimes be an hour or longer. And they're all driving up to an inspection booth where they're going to be asked questions. And then if there's suspicion, we're being told that it goes to a secondary inspection. You really can smell the exhaust out here. There's just so much traffic, though. 26 lanes of nonstop traffic. Anywhere from four to five to 50,000 vehicles a day. Well, we have a, a, a group of officers that are barred, part of our anti-terrorism contraband enforcement team, and that is their job is to be out here in this area that, that we call pre-primary. They're roving, they're talking to people in the vehicles, they're looking at vehicles, they're inspecting vehicles if they see something suspicious or in their conversation with the driver. Well, there's a Customs and Border agent here, and he has sort of a long pole device with a mirror, and it, it looks like, and a flashlight, and he looks like he's looking under the car to see if there's anything suspicious under the car. There's 26 lanes of traffic, so many cars, it's kind of overwhelming, and you can understand how hard it must be to find anything hidden in these cars. What is it he see? He can see something just hanging from the bottom? What can is just it? look to see if there's any discrepancies or any anomalies in the undercarriage of the vehicle. Sometimes you'll see that say uh, that vehicle there looks like it may be a four-wheel drive they will keep the front wheel drive engaged to work properly the rear wheel drive will still look like it's spinning but it's actually not connected to the rear wheels engaged and that compartment where that rear transmission is it's basically hollowed out and they can store drugs in it it seems like there's an infinite amount of ways that you can hollow out cars you are absolutely right. Whether there are already pre-existing compartments within a vehicle, quarter panels, engine compartments, roofing, seats, floors, fenders, bumpers. Also, inside gas tanks. You'll see a gas tank. They'll have that modified to where there's just enough gas to get the vehicle in, and the other portion of the gas tank will be used to have drugs in it. What we see is more of a, a cyclical kind of strategy. For example, today they've been hitting spare tires. And they understand that, hey, we're focusing on spare tires. And they're fluid and flexible. They'll change to gas tanks. And boom, then we will catch on. They're hitting gas tanks. So we'll focus on gas tanks. And then, boom, it moves to roofs. It moves to manifolds. It moves to uh, transmission areas and so on and so on. So it's a whole kind of a cat and mouse game in which we play with regards to how we identify, how we mitigate the threats. What we're seeing now is the officer is with the dog. Yeah, I think it is a German Shepherd, taking the dog all around the car. He's very busy. So the dogs are out here looking for concealed humans and concealed narcotics. So they're out roving with the canine handler. And if they, you know, if there's a change in the behavior that handler knows. I mean, lately here it's been all like... Uh you know, meth, coke. I've been getting quite a bit of fentanyl lately, too. Really? Yeah. And the dogs have all been trained to hit on fentanyl now. Yeah, we trained them a little over maybe two years ago. We did like a full program where we had two weeks where we trained them on fentanyl. You know, one of the issues here is they just trained the dogs two years ago. The fentanyl epidemic has been going on for since 2013. Now the dog is going into the car 
I always thought too that if we had a squad of canines dealing with every lane at every port of entry around the nation, that would certainly cut down a whole lot of drugs coming in in that fashion. That's you think? interesting. We've heard that, that more dogs would really help. Have you, then, have you, you have choke, then you have choke points in Mexico right now because they only have regular roads that are all leading to these multi-funneled into one and then they start splitting up when they get here. Just that funnel alone where everybody needs to go through if they had such canine screening like this, you would think, oh my goodness, you'd, you'd find almost everybody. Because there's a cost to doing what they do here. They know they're going to catch some of the vehicles that are loaded with drugs and others will get through. This area where we're moving into right now is known as secondary to do a more in-depth inspection of the people and or their vehicles. And only certain people get waved over here, right? Yeah. This is the secondary inspection area where if uh, a Customs and Border Protection officer sees something suspicious or the canine hit on a car, they bring them in this area. There's a lot of cars in here and officers, and they search the car. They, they do a, what they call a seven-point search from front to back, and the canine, they do a canine sniff and sometimes take apart, apart cars to see what they can find. So far this morning... They've made uh, three seizures. Underneath the car here, sprawled out on the ground, tapping underneath, tapping the spare tire. They just found meth this morning in the spare tire. They didn't find anything. I think they're about to let this young man through. Sari Horwitz is a reporter for The Post. She and her colleague Scott Heim have done extensive reporting on how fentanyl enters the U.S., going behind the scenes at the San Ysidro border crossing and also at the mail facility at JFK Airport in New York. You can find a link to their full story at postreports.com. And now, one more thing. For the last four years or so, I've been in this cycle of injury, pain, rehab, injury, injury, pain, rehab. Uh, And it's been unceasing and relenting, unrelenting, both in season, both in and off season. Uh, And I felt stuck in it. And the only way I see out uh, is is to, to no longer play football. I'm Jerry Brewer, sports columnist for The Post. Andrew Luck, the superstar quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts, shockingly announced his retirement at age 29 from the NFL, even though you could estimate he had another decade that he could play in the league and maybe up to $250 million that he could earn. Andrew Luck is easily one of the top five or six quarterbacks in the league. He was just coming off of being named Comeback Player of the Year in 2018, threw for more than 4,500 yards, 39 touchdowns, arguably 
the best season of his career. The Colts were thinking Super Bowl, but he injured his calf, and then it turned into this strange ankle situation as well. And for someone who missed an entire season in 2017 with a torn labrum in his shoulder, uh, he just decided enough is enough. I'm tired of rehabbing from injuries. I don't have any more passion for this game. I've been stuck in this process. I haven't been able to live the life I want to live. Taking the joy out of this game. And after 2016, where I played in pain and was unable to regularly practice, I made a vow to myself that I would not go down that path again. The NFL and everyone who follows football was completely shocked. As much as Andrew Luck is his own person, people just assumed that any player of his ability, any player coming off of the season that he had, would naturally not be thinking about retirement. Tom Brady, the gold standard in the NFL, the quarterback for the New England Patriots, is 42 years old and wants to play until he's 45. And so your your expectation is in football, for as volatile as the sport is, for as fleeting as it is for athletes, it's not... Uh, that bad of a situation for quarterbacks provided that you don't get them hit all I feel is love for this game and love for my teammates and walking in and I know I know my journey has had some you know some ups and downs and physically it has taken its toll over the last four years and I mean that is why I'm here and 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 the in the mental and emotional toll that 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 takes as well yeah this is a a period of enlightenment uh, for football players in general, when you want to talk about the effects of uh, CTE and, and uh, other things that concussions and what it does to your brain, uh, when you just think about the the volatility of the game and what it can do to your legs, what it can do to your knees, your shoulders, your quality of life when you hit 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, to have Andrew Luck, who's now the most prominent athlete in this era of enlightenment decide I don't want to play football anymore before he reaches the age of 30, it could have far reaching implications. I, I'm not sure that the average football player is going to think that way. They're going to think about maximizing their earnings, but we are in the middle of a trend. In order to have meaningful change, I do think that more people are going to have to come forward and just say the game is too dangerous right now or more specifically you aren't managing us the proper way I, I think that there are a lot of questions with NFL teams and, and according to how they diagnose injuries the way they take care of their players during the rehabilitation process and how quickly they put them back on the field and these are all issues that I think the NFL should be proactive in addressing but most likely they won't address them until it's a situation in which you know, a half dozen or a dozen prominent players have decided to leave the game early. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And an extra thank you to all of the people who've recently reviewed the show. 
Even the not-so-nice review from AGT1201, who accused me of being a Gen Zer. I will have you know that I was born in the late 80s, therefore I am squarely a millennial. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 